grab my water. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. <clears throat> I was telling Mark earlier that the, the name Trampled by Turtles makes me laugh. So I don't know if they're going for that or not, but it, it's just it's a good image. I like that image of someone slowly being trampled by a bunch of turtles. Makes me uh, giggle every time. But <clears throat> okay, thanks guys again, band, for that just the whole set and that song. Um, guys, welcome to our church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. As Spence said earlier, we uh, always um, are just grateful for you guys being here. And if you're a visitor, especially, thanks for joining us for worship. Or if you're in a place where you're just kind of considering the claims of Christ or checking out Christianity at your own pace, we're glad you're here too, just to, to learn with us. Um, we are right now in, a, in a, a week three of a series in the book of Judges. Uh, it's an Old Testament book. It's the seventh book of the Bible. If you wanted to just find it in a Bible, didn't know where it is. It's seven books in, right after Judges, right before Ruth. And so feel free to turn there or on your phone apps or whatever. Uh, but we'll have everything on screen as well as in your worship uh, insert, or the inserts in your worship folders too, if you want to follow along there. Shorter passage this week. It's only five verses compared to the 25 plus or whatever we had the past, the past two weeks. So, uh, But to remind you guys of what Judges is or let you know for the first time, Judges is a book like a lot of books of the Bible. And you could, actually, you could say it's about the whole of the, the biblical narrative. It's a book about sin and consequence and forgetting God and his saving ways and God's relentless grace in the face of that. So unsuspecting, surprising, almost like unfair grace in the face of that. That's what this book is about, but the whole, the biblical storylines about it, our lives as Christians are about that. And so we can expect to kind of see, you know, like, a, like an image of that played out uh, in this period of Israel's history over uh, and over and over again. So it historically pertains to Israel's, uh, this time period in Israel's history between 1400 and 1000 BC, uh, just to get your bearings a little bit historically there and timeline-wise. And the main themes that we've been saying for the past two weeks and kind of this uh, two-week introduction that we've uh, been through now for a couple of weeks, the main themes are land acquisition, conquest, and driving out evil from, that, from the land. Uh, and so if you're new to the biblical story, God, God after sin came into the world, has been, has been gracious and patient. He's calling sinners to himself. In the earlier part of history, that was a nation. It was a people group called Israel. Uh, but later on, it takes greater shape for all tr uh, tongues, tribes, and nations. Uh, so Jews and Gentiles, uh, just people like us, messy people. Uh, but it starts off on kind of this micro scale. And so one of the things God is doing in history you know, again, in the face of sin, after the first human beings were kicked out of a chunk of land called the Garden of Eden and exiled from God because they went their own way and chose to worship themselves and sinned and they were exiled from that garden, when God starts to give land back to sinners, there's a lot of hope in that. When he starts to give a chunk of land, even though it's a small thing and might seem kind of inconsequential uh, to us as readers, it, it wasn't. It was, it was this real-time historical grace where God is saying, here's some land for you, you don't deserve it, I'm going to give it to you, and I myself am going to be there. And so you can dwell among me, and I'll dwell among you, and I'll provide for you, and I'll, and I'll drive out evil from your midst. And so the driving out evil piece has to do with these inhabiting nations that were extremely wicked people that God is concerned about kind of uh, influencing his own people uh, with different types of uh, sinful practices, child sacrifice, idolatrous activities, and, and so forth. And so the cycle, and so judges then is, when we think about judges, don't think courtroom judge like we think in this culture. Think like tribal chieftain or military captain or just savior figure. So judges then, plural, 
is about uh, this cyclical thing of uh, God raising up these tribal chieftains, these military captains, these savior figures to deliver his people over and over again when they're kind of disobedient to the call to drive out that evil themselves. And actually, as we saw two weeks ago, they can't. In a lot of ways, they're incapable. They're not nearly as strong, not nearly as kind of advanced with weaponry as the surrounding nations. And so we talked about how that's a great spiritual metaphor for where we're at spiritually with God. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. If there's one like underlying Christian thing that Christians have to believe, because we have to believe because we won't go to Christ if we don't believe it. Christ will be a pet, an advice giver, you know? Uh, at best, a thing we wear around our neck. But that's puny compared to the living God saving us when we can't save ourselves. This is the gospel. So, uh, so we have to believe that. Judges pounds this home. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot save ourselves. We need, in Israel, from Israel's vantage point, we need a judge. And so God raises up a judge. From our standpoint, in the side of the cross, we need Christ, the ultimate, the ultimate uh, judge. And we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. But the cycle then we see is basically this. This came up last week. It's actually right in chapter 2. The author gets clear on what to expect cyclically in this book. Israel commits grievous sin repeatedly. God raises up another nation to rule over them and kind of, as I said last week, sort of test and prod them to the point of crying out to him so that he might save them. That's the next thing is the people cry out in every single judge's instance. They cry out for deliverance. That's all people can do who are helpless, right? Hopeless. God responds he, in, in kind and in grace. He raises up a judge, a deliverer to save them. The judge uh, rule, fights for them and drives out that, that evil nation. The judge rules for several years, sometimes up to, to a few decades, protecting them. And then the judge dies. And then the beginning of the next cycle starts all over again with grievous sin and consequence. People forgetting God, forgetting the past generations that experienced the saving grace of various kinds, which leads them into idolatry and all kinds of just incredibly wicked stuff and dark things. And it starts all over again. So today we're going to see this uh, play out in, in narrative form. Before that, though, again, to connect some dots then, because we still have to ask the question with any text of the Bible, what does this mean for us? And Judges can be one of those books where it, it, it doesn't seem to be any kind of like lesson, you know, or like it's so far removed culturally and geographically and chronologically and all of that, that it can just seem like, man, this is really hard. When you look at how the Bible reads itself, this is not like a grid that someone imposed on the Bible like 100 years ago and all of a sudden we do this now at the church. Since the beginning of the church, and we say this because Jesus himself does this, uh, Paul the Apostle that wrote half the New Testament reads the Old Testament in this manner. The author of Hebrews, classic example of doing this over and over and over again, of seeing, in other words, seeing Jesus as the hero and kind of final version of the shadows of the Old Testament. So in other words, the Old Testament is classic prophetic foreshadowing. It's, a, it's a, in some cases, an, a, an allegory or a metaphor. Still deeply grounded in history, this actually happened, but it's part of how God is choosing to reveal himself slowly to a dead and dying world. You know, he's saying, not just, I came into the world to save you, but he's showing that with word pictures. He's showing that with events. He's showing that with people's names and their stories. So for those of us that are more kind of lean that way, we have that in the Bible too. Or if we like prepositions and clear statements, we have that too. But they're all kind of saying the same thing. And that is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus and, and his grace. And so the cheat sheet then, to, and we talked way more about this a few weeks ago. If you're just here learning, 
learning this for the first time, this might seem sort of fast and out of nowhere. Uh, but this is, the, with that said, the simple, albeit crude, because there's more to say about judges than this, uh, interpretational cheat sheet. And that is the judges are pictures of Christ. Israel, and sometimes the judges, because they're sinners like us, are pictures of us and their sin and their, and their need for grace. Other nations, because they're enemies of Israel, earlier in the story, uh, help to, to remind Israel, and God's helpfulness too, when he talks to Israel in different ways, he's showing that there are physical enemies out here, but what I'm really concerned about is the fact that you're separated from me. That's the bigger problem, and that there's this sin enemy thing and death problem that needs to be overcome. Because no matter how great of life Israel had, or no matter how bad of life they had with suffering, everyone still dies. It's like this great equalizer, but also this thing that kind of reminds the people in the story themselves and us that it's, it's not about physical things, even though they can be you know, manifestations of, of our problems and, and symptomatic you know, of a fallen world for sure, so they relate. The true problem of the whole Bible that God has set out to overcome for our benefit is overcoming sin and death through Jesus Christ. And then the land rest idea, having a piece of that land, I talked about that before, so I won't go into that too much, but there's also a picture of Christ who is the ultimate land of God's presence and an image of salvation experienced uh, kind of on a basic level in Old Testament terms. So have that in mind. I hope that's helpful. Again, this is history, this is theology, but it's also allegorical. It's also spiritual uh, we know that because this is how the Bible itself reads these kind of narratives. So a spiritual dimension too. Okay, so with, with that said, I think those are the two big things I want to cover. Uh, let's read Judges 3. This, again, this is the first named judge of, of the book of Judges. Last two weeks kind of introductory in some ways. Um, this is the first named judge, uh, Othniel. And today uh, we'll look at Othniel, who is the newlywed judge from Judah. So I'll explain that in a little bit. He's the only, this is the only marriage mentioned, and actually this is more from chapter one, I'll go back to it, but the only marriage mentioned in Judges. All right, verse seven. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So stop right there. Those are, if you don't know what those are, those are Canaanite gods. In fact, Baal is the, is the primary uh, one, but they're sort of male and female respectively uh, gods of war and fertility. Uh, there's much more to say about that, but, but, but it's, so it's not just that Israel is sort of abandoning the God who made them in their mother's wombs and starting to thank the rain itself for watering their crops as opposed to the God who made the rain and committing that kind of idolatry, but they're also kind of taking on themselves different types of um, wrath-appeasing practices like sacrificing their own children like uh, the Canaanites did. Uh, to the, God, the gods of Baal and, and the Ashtaroth. And so they're, they're engaging in these types of idolatrous activities. It's, it's, it's cre- temple prostitution as well. Tons and tons and tons of things like this layered, stacked on top of each other um, that are abhorrent to God. They're a stench to him. Uh, and they're incredibly harmful to other people, obviously, and it's the taking of innocent lives. And, and there's much more to say about where the Canaanites were morally, but also the Israelites too. It was just a mishmash of just terribleness but anyway verse 8 therefore so because of all that therefore the anger of the lord was kindled against israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan rishatim king of mesopotamia and the people of israel served Cushan rishatim eight years when the people of israel cried out to the lord the lord raised up a deliverer for the people of israel who saved them othniel the son of Kenaz, caleb's younger brother 
The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord gave Krishan Rishatim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Krishan Rishatim. So the land had rest for 40 years. 40 years. Then Othmiel, the son of Kenaz, died. All right, so one little aside to start here with, a few comments on the first uh, few verses here that we'll pull from last week. So one big thing, if you are here for last week, we talked about was the pattern of Israel forgetting the Lord, and I mentioned this this morning too, forgetting about God and his past saving work, and that forgetfulness leading people into sin and just kind of abandoning God. And we tie this, this pattern, to the New Testament, so kind of our era now, the New Testament principle of Christians remembering God's New Testament past-saving work, which is Jesus' death for our sins and his resurrection, which defeated death, remembering that, which saves us on those levels spiritually and ultimately physically. It, it is one of the, as we said last week, one of the highest forms of Christian spirituality. In fact, if you're asking that question, you're asking a good question, by the way, if you are. But if you're asking the question, what should I do with my time on a daily basis as a Christian? I've been asked that a lot as a pastor. I've asked that a lot myself as a Christian. What should I do when it's so much about grace and it's so disarming and it's so much about rest? This is, a, this is like top of the list stuff right here. Uh, top of the list is practicing active remembrance of the gospel. Practice active, this is commanded in the Bible, practice active remembrance of God's path-saving work. Israel imaged it when they remembered the exodus and different things that were happening to the judges and now in a fulfilled manner now on this side of Christ, we remember Jesus who's the final version of those things. Communion's a big, uh, a big piece to this we talked about last week. So, as we'll see in Judges, cyclically, forgetfulness becomes an example not to emulate. Yet, with all this said, there's still another layer to stack on top of this. Things are complicated in, in Judges. They're not always super neat and packaged. Another layer to pack onto it to highlight, and that is the fact that although we're called to remember God's past-saving work, this is the key, what truly matters is not our remembrance of God, but God's remembrance of us. You know, note it says here at the top of the paragraph, they forgot the Lord, Israel forgot the Lord their God, and they served other gods, and they committed unspeakable acts. But then, and there was consequence for that, but then, skipping down, they cried out to God for deliverance, and God implied, remembered them, and sent this judge, Othniel, and other judges to, to save them. We see this all over the Old Testament. If this is a newer concept, just understand this is a repeated pattern where we see this pattern of God remembering in a way that kind of surpasses how much people remember him. And one example that came to mind was in Genesis 8 where it says to Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and all these animals on this ark when they're in the midst of the flood. And it's kind of like mid-flood. So that they've been on the boat weeks. If you, if you don't know the story, read Genesis 6 to 9. Uh, it is one of the initial kind of um, judgment stories of the Bible, but also salvation stories, where Noah is saved by grace and the world is purged of evil. That's actually a word that's used, purged, purged of its evil. But in the midst of that, the, this family is on the boat, probably pretty hopeless and haven't seen land for weeks. But then it says this. It's a pretty uh, clean break in the narrative from chapter 7. It says in Genesis 8-1, but God... It's kind of a contrast to all that's going on. Basically, the world is like disintegrating you know, before them. But then, but God, but God still is there. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock. 
that were with him in the ark. And then, and then this key piece, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. But those first three words, but God remembered. Noah and his family's ultimate deliverance from the flood was not based on, or was, sorry, was based on God remembering them in their hopeless distress and not on them remembering, remembering God. Again, this is, this is exactly what we see in Judges. So to put it another way, when we remember God's past saving works, and when we take communion, or you know, it's through preaching, or teaching, or talking to another Christian, or reading your Bibles, when we're remembering what Jesus did for us on that cross, what we're really remembering is the fact that God remembered us when we forgot about him in sin. That's where it gets kind of like convoluted and a little bit trippy. But we're called to remember, but what we're remembering is God is really good at remembering. And when he sent his son, he remembered us in our distress, heard our cries, and responded. Just like to Noah, just like to Israel through the judges, and just like to us. Tons of grace in this idea, you guys. Never forget this. This is, this is worth our attempts, even though they're always feeble, uh, attempts at remembering this idea. When we struggle to remember, so if you guys have ever struggled to remember great, what grace is, you know, what God's mercy, how big his mercy is, uh, if you doubt, you know, uh, if, if you just haven't been in, like, some, if you've been in some bad rhythms or patterns, like spiritually, in your life, there just hasn't been, you haven't taken communion for weeks or, or, or longer, months, months and months. Like, when we struggle to remember, rest in the fact that God is not struggling to remember you. He's really good at it. And he never, ever, ever fails. Isn't that encouraging? Like, no matter what you're wrestling with or what you're struggling with, if you're forgetting God, he's remembering you. When you're asleep, he's remembering you. When you're sinning, he's remembering you. He's actively at work making you more like his son all the time and working all things out in your life for the good. So, I mean, you've got to take, we've got to take that as Christians and just, you know, like lay on that like a pillow. You know, that, that's here for, and then we see this in Judges. It's not really, people are forgetful. We're forgetful. What mattered in Judges is that God remembered. And so, so I think that we can work really hard at, at remembering, you know, and we should. This is a really big part of our spirituality, like we said last week especially. But I want to add a layer here, and that is to Christians uh, like, like me, like mo most of us probably in the room. Remember that God is much better at remembering you than you are of him. Always remember that. God is much better at it. And that will always be the case. But let that spur in you a desire to remember him more. So this idea, if we remember God and we have the capacity to because he first remembered us and he is ongoingly remembering us in our distress. Actually, if we lose this, we lose the whole of Christianity. You know, if, if it were just about God saying, remember me or else, judges wouldn't make a lot of sense because why would there, why would there be cycles? There'd be like one instance of Israel forgetting and God would like destroy the earth <laughs> or something. So the fact that God's patient and graceful, that there are cycles... The fact that we're still here, you know? I mean, how many times have we, like, collectively forgotten the Lord? I mean, oh, my gosh, right? If we, if we had a list, like, going, like, Spence and I actually have a list in our office. No, we don't. But uh, if we had a list, like, it'd be, it'd be, like, wrap around the world, you know? And so God is good, faithful, full of grace. And we've got to remember that even though we can try hard at remembering, it's more about, more about his remembrance and thinking about Jesus when we do it.
Okay, so that was all on the side. Let's actually get into Judges now, though. Um, Judge it and Othniel in particular. So, so who is, uh, this is the big question for today. Who is Othniel? And how exactly did he judge or save Israel? Kind of two big things, and I'll just say them off, off the cuff here so you can know what's coming. One is uh, he saved Israel as a newlywed. So he is a newlywed, so we'll just talk about that. And who is he? But then two, full of the Spirit. So he judged as a newlywed who fought for them, and also um, full of the Spirit, which is a key phrase we'll, we'll end with. So first, a newlywed from Judah. And I mentioned the Judah piece a couple of weeks ago, how that's really important. I'm not going to go back into that much today, but he is a Judahite. Judah is the tribe of, of the eventual Christ, of Jesus eventually, and so we made a lot of uh, correlations there, uh, as, as we should, sort of genealogically, but also on a resemblance basis. So we saw that already. What I want to do, though, is go back to chapter 1, I skipped this the first week knowing that Othniel was coming as a named judge, and so this is part of his story. Amidst battles, there's this arranged marriage. And so it's kind of cool that the Bible takes, takes time to talk about this and get very specific, as opposed to just saying Judah did all this stuff, there's a tribe, Judah did all this stuff, to kind of slow down and say, well, there's this, there's this couple of named Judahites now, this Caleb guy, who had a daughter, Aksa, and he said, whoever goes out now and fights this one kind of Mesopotamian crew, or actually it's not that, but uh, anyway, this one Canaanite crew, uh, and wins, I'll, I'll give my daughter Aksa uh, as, uh, as an, so it's an arranged marriage as this kind of reward for that or as in response to that. So that's basically what's going on. Let me just read it, though, and we'll see some detail to it. Judges 1.12 says, And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So it makes perfect sense, right? Uh, it's a, it just preaches itself. But, okay, well, let's talk about this, though. It's actually really cool. Uh, but one quick thing on it, if you did the relational math there, if you're, like, good at kind of following, like, um, family trees down, it, one way to read that is actually to see that, um, or to read that Othniel is um, Aksa's uncle. <laughs> so, but that's not actually going on. I'd be like, you know, you might be thinking, ew, what? Married his niece? Disgusting. Uh, it's actually not going on. The, the, the way you translate this in English, that, that clause, um, well, basically, uh, Kanaz is, or Kanaz is Caleb's younger brother, not Othniel. And so just that, that clause points to uh, Kanaz and not, and not Othniel. It's kind of confusing, but the, when I first read that, I thought, what? And I thought, actually, my first thought was, well, there's a lot of craziness going on in Judges, so I guess incest wouldn't be that out, out of left field, but, or that kind of thing, but it's actually not happening. Um, in fact, or instead, they're first cousins. Which you might be, again, thinking, ew, still like gross, but doesn't help. But it, it's actually uh, lawful. In this culture, people married within their tribes a lot. It happened all the time. It was kosher. God was not against it, in case you were wondering. Um, but even if you weren't, there you go. So anyway, uh, Othniel and Aksa are our first cousins, and Caleb and um, Kanaz are, are brothers then. So anyway, yeah, it's kind of confusing the way it's written. Okay, a map here, though. Uh, for those of you who like this stuff, uh, this is so uh, they, they liked, or they were given the, the Negev. This is the Negev Desert, so the Negev is, uh, is desert. This is why she, to Aksa, is asking for springs. She's basically like, hey, this is great, but it's also dry there. 
can we have this whole area that kind of butts up to it that has, has the springs, upper and lower springs, and Caleb, her dad, says, absolutely, we can have that too. But you can also see here this white box, Othniel, and this map shows all the judges kind of where they judged. This is the area Othniel lived, and this green subtle circle here is kind of our best guess in where, where he judged. And so see how it's all kind of very particular in terms of where the judges lived and kind of who they judged and who they delivered Israel from. If you want that, I can send it to you. But um, just understand that Negev is down here, and you can see Othniel's kind of in uh, Oxos to, of course, uh, kind of their, their area. So, all right, so the question now is theologically, what do we do with this, right? It's a little odd, a little out of place. I actually love this about the Bible that we have very clear statements like Jesus died for the sins of the world or pray continually you know, or something. Then we have these arranged marriage narratives with really hard to, to pronounce names like in the Old Testament too. Cool thing is they're all kind of saying the same thing. They're all part of the same story and addressing the same you know, lives like, like us, sinners far from God, and they just come at it uh, differently. And so going back to our cheat sheet that I told you before, with our interpretive methodology in mind and the Bible's own perspective on narratives like this or these kinds of things, and the fact that Old Testament narrative really is less interested in moral lesson uh, as, as it is telling us a story of Jesus ahead of time, like we talked about before. Um, and so, and as you notice here in the story, there's no like, therefore, here's the lesson to go home and take to your kids kind of thing. It just says it. You know, it's a lot of narratives just like, it's just story. And so we have to do the kind of the heavy lifting and ask the bigger question, what does this mean then on historical and theological levels? But if it was just historical, if that's all it was, then we could say at best, great, Othniel got married. And we could maybe affirm God's goodness in that because marriage is a gift and, that, and that's great. Uh, but that's all we could really say. We'd say, all right, check, got it. Um, next, and we'd move on and keep reading the rest of chapter one, you know, but that's kind of all we could say. It was just history, but if it's theology as well, then the question becomes, you know, things like what does Othniel's marriage tell us about God uh, and about the nature of Othniel's judging, as well as ultimately about Jesus, who's the final version of Othniel, the final manifestation of him as a a, a newlywed judge himself from, from Judah. And so that gets me then into this next piece, this first piece, which is to talk about this theologically is to connect Othniel and Jesus, again, going back to that beginning piece. But you know what, when I back up and just really get the 30,000-foot view here, from Judges 1 at least, 1 and 3, one of the things we're seeing basically, if you just describe it, and I encourage you guys to do this sometime if you're looking for Christ in a verse, is just describe it. Use different words for what's happening. Summarize it and see if that summary ends up sounding like something you've read elsewhere. In the Bible, and, and a lot of times it, it does. And so when I back up, one of the things that I, I think is Judges 1 is about a wedding amidst a war. That's really what it is. It's a wedding amidst this crazy series of, of wars all the way around. It's kind of this glimpse of light, actually. But as good as the Bible, as Judges gets, actually, is this wedding happens, and it seems to be pretty great. And then things are just terrible outside of that. Uh, so it's kind of this cool little glimpse at the very, very beginning. But narratively, historically, theologically, it's about a wedding amidst a war. And, and then to tie that in, you know, I, I personally, I can think of, of fewer, more helpful depictions of what Jesus did for us on the cross than that. It was a wedding between God and sinners amidst a battle, or maybe the battle first, and then a wedding ensues. And, and that's the thing about the gospel is, you know, what Jesus did for us on the cross was, was not just a transaction. 
You know, it wasn't just like a payment or it wasn't just an exchange. It was. We use these words because the Bible does and, and theologians do and they're helpful. But it wasn't just that. The Bible says it was actually a wedding taking place. It was God and his son, you know, God like giving his son to a bride and the bride is the church. And Christ is called a bridegroom in the Bible and the church is called a bride in more than one place for this very reason. And so when it's a wedding, when we add wedding imagery and realities to what we think about when we think about Jesus, is all of a sudden we're talking more about love and promises and vows. You know, not so much like, you know, laws or distance because couples live together. And we don't talk, like when Letha and I hang out, we don't talk about law. You know, like what are we sort of bound to morally on this? And we kind of get our lists in the morning. It's just kind of silly, right? We talk about and we remember love. And we kind of live in the safety of that and, and the promise of that. So that's the story of the Bible. Uh, it, it is, it's about a God who would do anything to be with his people again. Even suffering unimaginable pain and bearing the weight of hell itself. And fighting in the bloodiest, most horrific of wars. Wars, really, that the worst of judges can at best whisper. Because Jesus was bearing a greater kind of war. He, he fought a war for us that was against sin and death and the devil himself. It was also bearing God's wrath and the punishment for sin in our place. And as we've been saying in this series, all the horrors of judges, like the worst of it, the nightmarish parts of, of judges, if we as human beings, sinful human beings, want hope for a different kind of future than what the people of Israel had during this time, then we have to have some kind of remedy or some kind of person or some kind of intervention from God to take it all away and to bear it. Because put on human shoulders, it keeps happening. But we need God to interrupt the cycle. And Jesus is that, in, that cycle interrupter where he comes in and he stops this madness. But to do that, he had to wear all of the other nation's sins, the child sacrificing the, and Israel's idolatrous actions and the, the temple prostitution, the sexual sins, he, and, and, the, and the exile from God that all humanity was facing, he had to take all of that on himself and bear it and take it far away from us, which is exactly what he himself says, what God himself says, what the Bible says about the cross. He was experiencing exile from God for us, and he was bearing our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the, the connections then to, to make here, I have a few things in, in chart form to help, is like Othniel won his bride through a battle, so did Jesus win the church through a battle, a much tougher battle, a much, and with a, with a much greater kind of love. Acts 20, 28 says, Jesus bought the church with his own blood. Did you know, Christian, that you were purchased back from sin and death and that Jesus' blood was worth enough, like it, was, it, it had the ability to buy you back from your old life? Jesus bought the church with his blood. Acts 20, 28 is very Judges 1-ish. It's very Othniel-ish. It's very Aksa-ish. It's very Caleb-ish in terms of how it's uh, being, being written. So Othniel's story is, it should be, uh, I was just going to say is, but, but should be hugely encouraging for us. It, it means that Jesus did all the heavy lifting to bring us to himself. You know, you look at Aksa here, the... Um, the bride, what did, what did she do in the story? She watched, she waited, and she received her groom. And she received wedding gifts too. We'll talk about that in a second. But she watched, she waited, and she received her groom. This is, 
classic Christianity. I mean, if other religions rewrote this, rewrote this section, it would say something like, you know, Aksa was the one that was called to go out and fight and condition if she returned victorious, then she would get to marry Othniel. That's how it would be written. What a terrible story, you know? I'd like skip over that one. Like, how depressing. But that, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Othniel fought, and Aksa was passive, just like we are passive as the church to salvation. We are passive to the things of grace. We are passive when it comes to how much greater God's love is for us than, than ours for him. Passive in terms of what it means to kill sin. You know, and so it, it's such good news that, that the version that I kind of put out there is the, the false version isn't what the Bible says. It, it just gloriously isn't. And so then the second layer to this is this is a wedding with wedding gifts. Like we bring gifts to weddings and we give them to the couple. There's gifts mentioned here too that are, that are springs. And so the second thing here is, is this is a wedding explicitly and intentionally associated with the gift of springs which to connect dots pretty quick here, reminds us that Jesus too, as a type of bridegroom, is associated with the giving of the gift of springs. Even springs, we could say, in the ultimate desert or dry land or Negev. Isaiah 43, 19 is very helpful here. We actually have this verse stenciled at the base of these stairs down here. Maybe you guys have seen that. It's been a huge verse for us in terms of our history as a church. The prophecy here being about Jesus and just this idea of bringing water to deserts. We, we just always love that imagery. We Sing about it and preach about it, but this is where it comes from, Isaiah 43, 19. This is what it says. Speaking of Jesus ahead of time, too prophetically, like Judges 1, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the Negev, rivers in the desert. And then Jesus gets more clear in John 7, same kind of imagery, but more clear as to what those things represent, so a little bit less allegorical. He says, or it says first, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I love that. And that, that's one of those, either Jesus is a madman or he's the son of God, because who says that? You know, it's holy water there. He's just saying, I will give you some kind of like thirst quenching thing and, and you'll never thirst again. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this is, this is the interpretive key here. So he, John comments, Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit, God's Spirit, had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, raised up from, from the earth, from, from death. That came later. There's a lot to say about this, guys, but just a couple of quick things here tying to Judges 1 is that the Spirit, there's just a cool connection here between uh, springs and rivers in the desert being given as a gift at this wedding in the Old Testament. And now we say this all the time because the Bible does. The Holy Spirit is a gift. It's like the ultimate wedding gift. So in association with Jesus dying for our sins and erasing that problem that stands between us and him, he gives us himself. This is what God ultimately wants. He wants to be close to you again. He wants to give of himself. You see, so he's not a million miles away. He's actually, for the Christian, by faith, he lives within. And the Holy Spirit is the sign and the reality of, of, of that saving grace. And so then, the, the grace then for us becomes hope for life change. We think about, you know, what it means to be, uh, to do good works as Christians or to be a loving person or to practice humility. 
or to be a seeker of unity, all these kind of marks of the Holy Spirit when it talks about these things in the New Testament. The good news is, you know, Judges 1 is hinting at this time is coming when God would give the gift of that, meaning it's not in us. So the Spirit himself would produce, just like the springs and oxa and othniel are different things in, in the Old Testament narrative, it's the same with you and me. Like, we're not the Spirit. And so if the Spirit is the producer of life, like flowing rivers from our heart, meaning love and good works and all those things the Spirit produces, then it has to come from God. You know, and I know for a lot of you, you this, is, this is a kind of a duh statement if you've heard this a thousand times, but it's easy to forget. You know, your love and your good works are possible because of this marriage idea in the Bible. You have to be one spirit with God, otherwise it actually is on you, and you are able, and then that compromises the gospel. It's less about God, more about us. And so, or I can say it this way, believing Jesus is wedded to us, and we have the spirit too, it's all saying the same thing, wedded to us, prevents us from trying harder to be good on our own. It, we're, just gonna, we're not going to try that hard. We're going to be freely doers of good because we believe God's spirit lives within us. And it's a wedding gift, not a contract that we have to keep our end of in order to be saved. It's a wedding gift. See how much more freeing that is? You know, as you think about this whole wedding thing, too, I, I was thinking this week about just Aletha and I, but just the, you know, the principle of, of marriage. It's, it's like a, a, a married couple's love, you know, is based more on their vows than their moral performance, right? At least in good marriages. And I know all love is frail. Some of you might be in rockier spots in a marriage, and so this is harder to, to believe. But it's still true for you with God. A married couple's love is based more on their vows than their moral performance. And, and I was thinking back in the beginning in Genesis 2 where it says Adam and Eve were this first couple made, and they were married, and she's called his wife already. And it says they were naked and had no shame. And I think that nakedness is not just physical. I think it's emotional and spiritual and just across the spectrum, there was no shame because that marriage provided a safety net. There were vows. There were commitments. You know, marriage gives that. This is the, this is the beautiful thing about marriage is, is that we you just don't have in a dating relationship or even an engaged relationship, though there's intent there, is you have promises and vows. So, like, Aletha and I got married here 16, right? It's questioning that. I think it was 16, yeah, 16 years ago. Crazy. Okay. Anyway, we're standing right here. And that's what, that's what we said is we swear that the only thing that will separate us is death. We swear before God. We vow to each other before friends and family and the people standing up here. The only thing that will separate us is death. And the thing that marriage does is that provides a safety net for fighting, for disagreeing, for winning or losing debates. Uh, you know, for just having conflict because we're not worried about someone running for the hills. It's hard to end a marriage. And, and the, the assumption is that people actually mean their vows anyway. So the assumption is they don't want divorce, but we live in a fallen world, that happens. But in general, it provides a safety net. You know, even sexually. You know, I talk to, um, we talk to premarrieds all the time about this, and this is the, the problem, one of the many problems with premarital sex is it's not happening within the safety net of covenant commitment. And promises. So in other words, if sex doesn't go that well and you're experimenting, what's, what's to stop that person just going on to the next woman or the next man? This didn't work sexually. It wasn't that great. I had better hopes. 
So why not just run and go on and experiment over here? The reality is nothing's really stopping that other than a little bit of messiness for break, for, you know, like, oh, we, you know, we really kind of gave each other, to, ourselves to each other, that's going to be hard to break, but there's just no, there's no legal aspect, there's no vows, there's no promises, there's no maybe kids involved or anything like that, it's just, it's very easy to do. And so we say this a lot to couples because, you know, sex isn't always that great. It, it is great, but it's not always that great, you know, and so when, when, you, when you make promises in a marriage and, like, you know, things aren't that great sexually sometimes, it's not like, Oh, now I got to fake it and perform so they think that I really liked it so they won't leave me. All of a sudden, it's more now, oh, let's just try tomorrow, you know? We can laugh at ourselves, you know, kind of thing, and don't take ourselves too seriously. And, right? Anything else you want to... So, <laughs> I actually didn't, yeah. I said all this first service, and I wasn't intending to say any of this today. It just kind of happened, so... I'm trying to replicate what I, what I said before. But, but he, here's the thing. The, the point to all this is naked and no shame. If this is true, and if we're married to God through Jesus Christ, metaphorically speaking, then, before God, naked and no shame. Right? Your sins won't break the covenant. Your quarrels with God won't send him running for the hills. If humans can have this, and our love is fragile and imperfect and messy, how much more is God's perfect love going to endure? He hates divorce because of what it says about, what it can image about his covenant faithfulness to his people, to his church. Naked and no shame, guys. You can be exposed before God, spiritually speaking. He, he sees everything in your heart. All of your deepest, darkest, nightmarish thoughts, all of your sins, all of mine, exposed, and they're still loved. And, and, and it's safe, right? We, it's, this is where confession of sin comes from, too. If there's not, like, covenant commitment with God, you know, we don't have that image in the church, we're not going to want to say, hey, I have to confess some sin to you. We'd be more, more scared of that because of what we think God's going to think if we kind of own that before him, or the church is going to think if we own that before the church. Again, it's about safety, love, and commitment. And the gospel, man, if you guys have never heard this, too, this, if you're not a Christian yet, this is what the gospel is. It's much more like a marriage than it is an employment contract. It's about a relationship with God. God sharing, giving his very body over to hell for you and me. And the spirit undergirds this. It's about wedding gifts, you know. Again, not the, the stone tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. It's more about these springs of the Negeb. It's more about Othniel and Aksa getting married. That's, what, that's where Jesus is in these texts. And there's no law present. Praise be to God. All right, this last piece here, the spirit. We actually haven't gotten to Judges 3 yet. This is hilarious. Okay, no, this will go fast. There's this one thing full of the spirit that I want to talk about. How did Othniel judge with the spirit, full of the spirit? In verse 10, it says, The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave all these peoples and nations into his hand, and they drove out that, that evil, or he did, he drove out that, that evil. So this phrase, the spirit of the Lord is unique. Not every judge gets this phrase attached to him, but again, obviously, or maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not, it just means that God is not only the one that raised him up, but God was the one empowering his judging actions and, and his victory over, over these enemies. So he's being strengthened, like God would later strengthen his son, Jesus, to do the same thing over our sin. This is why Jesus talks in these terms about the, the Spirit being empowered 
When he was baptized, the Spirit descended on him. Remember that? Descended on him and empowered him for ministry. So as a human being, he was a son of God, but as a human like us, he was empowered like Othniel was as a human for the same kinds of things, but greater things. And in Luke 4, so I'm really kind of going fast here, but in Luke 4, Jesus talks in these terms to start his ministry, basically. I want to read this and comment on a few things. It says, In the scroll the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. I, I like that because you know, there's kind of this, who is this guy? You know, kind of moment here. Uh, but then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled or kind of reached its climax or its finish line in your hearing. So a couple of quick things about this related to Judges 3. So that, notice the same phrase is used, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This actually is quoting from Isaiah 62, another prophecy in the Old Testament. He's unrolling the scroll and teaching but he's saying, this is about me. But to tie it to Judges 3, first big kind of teaching thing here is note the obvious progression from what Othniel was indwelt by the Holy Spirit for and what Jesus, the ultimate Othniel, was indwelt by the Holy Spirit for. You guys see the progression and the difference? It's a clear movement from physical to spiritual battle, physical enemies to much greater enemies like blindness, but especially spiritual blindness and sin. And here's a big one because judges talk so much about it from deliverance and physical oppression to, um, from physical oppression to deliverance from spiritual oppression. So the idea of oppression, it's exactly what Israel was going through. They were oppressed. And so when Jesus says to deliver the oppressed, you know, he, he's talking about it on much higher, related, but much higher scale level on spiritual terms. And like we've said this a lot here for clarity, like, even last Christmas, I think this came up once, but, you know, when Jesus says here, for example, I came to proclaim liberty to the captives, for clarity, he's not talking about going into prisons and unlocking actual physical jail cells. I mean, on one level, that might be unjust, you know, um, but, it be, and we just never, but on the second more important level, we don't have any record of that. There's no record in the Gospels of Jesus doing this physically. And so he must, if, he's, if he himself is saying, this is what I came to do, there must be a different version of releasing captives. That's exactly what he does. And in fact, at one point, Jesus had the opportunity to set free John the Baptist, who was imprisoned unjustly, but he didn't do it. It would be the one time, like, okay, let's fulfill you know, Luke 4, Isaiah 62 here, and actually set John the Baptist free, but he, he passes over that physically. But then, spiritually, he actually does set him free because he sends his disciples back to John to say, hey, I'm the Christ, believe in me. I came to do all this stuff for you. If you believe in me, you're set free. You're liberated in prison. He's about to have his head cut off too. You're liberated as, as you know, an eventual decapitated man. You're liberated from your sins. Liberated from death. That's what, so there's a clear movement here from Othniel, same language used, but from Othniel to, to Jesus. But, but I love what it says here and I highlighted this in yellow, uh, what it says here at the end. All eyes were fixed on him when, when, when he read. And I think the reason this is the case is because those words were about him, not them. 
You know, it's the same with Judges 3. When we read about Othniel, we should picture Jesus reading it and saying, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing because it's about me. If we read Judges 3 and our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, we've completely missed the point of the passage. Completely. And all that's left is some kind of lesson for us, like what are the spiritual Canaanites in our life that we too can be strengthened against uh, and just kind of think about what that looks like. You know, what a sad and cheapened takeaway from an otherwise very grace-filled and Jesus-centered message. Jesus had the Spirit of the Lord on him. You know, and we have it. We talked about how it's a gift to us too, but initially, like Othniel and like Jesus, Jesus is saying this is not like a time for you to take Luke 4 and think about, okay, guys, go and do this. Jesus is saying today this is about me. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's Othniel who judges Israel seemingly by himself. You know, verse 9 But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz. You know, the the fulfilled version of this would be something like this. There's other ways to write this. But verse 9 fulfilled is, but when, when sinners cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them who saved them, Jesus, the Son of God. This is what the gospel is. And this is what Judges 3 means, mixed with Judges 1. This is, this is like grace for you and me in the moment. A reminder for many of you, maybe the first gospel you've ever heard for some of you as well. This is what Christianity is all about. And this is where Jesus judged for us, where he fought for us, where he defeated sin and death for us, where he gave us springs as a wedding gift, where he himself gave us the spirit to wed God to our, to our very souls. This is where it happened. And so then it's about faith. And, and so, so two things then to leave you guys with. Um, so, so two things, actually I have two R's here. Someone said after first service, you should have a third R. Where's the third R? It's so much more balanced, but sorry, two, two R's. All right, so first is relax. Relax. Othniel fought for Israel. Othniel fought for Israel. Relax. Jesus fought for you. That's what this means. I mean, if we don't have like a, take a deep breath of like relief and fresh air to this passage, we're probably missing the point. We're probably reading ourselves too much into it and thinking too quickly about how we ourselves fight battles. Then it's not as much of a relief. But there's an invitation for all of us, Christian or not today, if you're not for the first time, if you are, to remember this. Relax. Jesus fought for you when he died for your sins. He slayed spiritual Canaanites. In fact, if there's anything to do in this passage at all, anything to emulate, it's to cry out to God. And we'll see that a lot in, in this, uh, this whole series. If we are, I mean, if we're true Israel as a church, to use New Testament terms for what the church is, if we're like the true people of God, then and, and we're to emulate them. Cry out to God. Do you guys do that? Do, do you, do you um, confess sin and cry out to help when you're under the thumb of some kind of addiction? Um, when you doubt, when you fear, when you feel oppressed demonically? I mean, you name it, anything. Um, do you, do you, it could be something more physical, like you know, when your marriage is on the rocks. 
whatever, but do, do, you, do you come to God and cry out for deliverance? Or do you kind of tend to take that more on your shoulders? Even as a Christian saying, yeah, I did that once, but now I think it's more about me. So I'm going to try to kind of workshop this thing in my mind and kind of solve this problem in my mind. And I'm, I'm actually trying to be very simple here. Like, I mean actively, audibly, hearing yourself cry out to God for deliverance and for salvation. Do you ever do that? And chances are some of you in the room maybe haven't been in a pattern of that for months as Christians, for months, maybe years. It's a very simple thing, and it actually will lead you to worship and thanksgiving and be more of a gospel person if you practice the act of remembering the gospel and the act of crying out to God for help all the time. Second is, oh, sorry, second is receive. So receive the wedding gift of springs, namely God's spirit. Again, so much to say here, guys, but this, in part this is saying receive the fact that the goal of the gospel is to be where God is. It's not an employment contract. It's uh, to be close to God again. And then if there's anything else to kind of point at really quick, these are all sermons themselves, but say what does the Spirit do in a church community when he's present? We see love other Christians, seek unity with them, and be a gospel voice in their life. And so that's something really just simple, practical, you, you guys, can, you spirit-filled Christians can do as you receive that gift to practice keeping in step with him is freely, because you're not saved by how well you do it, but freely love another Christian this week, sacrificially, at Hiawatha, if this is your home church. Seek unity with them who are very different from you and, and be a gospel voice in prayer, in some kind of encouraging word and, or, or prophetic word to just say, hey, th- this is who God is to you and um, to teach them. That's what it means to be, there's more. That's what it means, though, to be a spirit-filled Christian. So receive that gift and walk in that freely this week with the strength God provides. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this passage, very complex, very layered. Uh, Thank you that the gospel helps it to at least get a little simpler. Uh, We pray for help, though, uh, with your spirit to continue to decipher and kind of decode some of these tricky, very seemingly random passages in the Bible about even arranged marriages uh, like that. So anyway, God, we pray for, just in thanks, that you, like Othniel, but better than him, fight our battles. You wed us to yourself. You give us, uh, like Caleb in the story, uh, wedding gifts like the Spirit. And you fight seemingly completely on your own without our help. But like Aksa, simply our gaze, our waiting, and our glad reception of um, our spiritual groom. Uh, who, who fights lovingly, not an obligation, but lovingly for people who don't deserve it. Um, God, help us to believe that, to rest in that, to relax in that, just to relax a little bit. Take a deep breath, laugh at ourselves, not take our, ourselves too seriously, but take you very seriously because of what the gospel means. So pray that for our church, for myself, uh, all of us, God, in community. In your name, amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand, sing, and respond.